Well, good morning. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Garrett. I'm one of the pastors here at Delray Baptist. And uh, this is the time when we open up the Bible um, for an extended period of time and, and dive in and kind of go verse by verse through a passage of Scripture. So before we do that, we're going to go once more and ask God for His help in both the preaching uh, and the, the hearing of His, his words. So let's, let's do that. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that now you would make it plain to us. Father, we pray that we would not have natural eyes that would just look at this and think it's just another book that could be on a shelf alongside other books to try and glean wisdom from, but that you would help us to see truly uh, that this is indeed your word, and that when it is read, you are speaking. And Father, we pray that that now you would not allow me or any of our frailties to stand in the way of both the proclamation and the reception of your word. We pray that you would help us. God, would you help us to see what you intend us to see? Would you help us to hear what you intend us? Would you help us to believe what we in, you intend for us to believe? And would you help us to confess in all of the ways that we fall short? And would you help us to lean with all that we are and all that we have upon Christ as our sufficient Savior. God, would you give us grace in our time? We pray that you would supply it in full for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. Last week we began a new series in this uh, interesting book of the Bible. Judges chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find Bibles provided for you there uh, in your pew rack, page 491. 491 in those Bibles. As we come to this, this passage this morning, I think it might be helpful for us to just uh, think for, for just a moment about how, how does God love His people and how does, he, how does he show that in, in history as recorded in, in the Bible? And I think what you find really the whole story of, of history, the story of the Bible, really can hang on a couple themes. That of ruin and that of redemption. That, that God creates a perfect world, but that we very quickly rebel against Him and ruin comes because of our sin. Everything is now broken. We who live down here on this planet are keenly aware of that. We live in a broken world. There's brokenness around us. There's brokenness within us. But the good news is that God doesn't leave us in our ruin to just smolter and to, to perish forever, but he, he mercifully redeems. He sends a Savior to come and to rescue us. And this, in many ways, is, that is the whole story of the Bible. It's really the whole story of history that is intended to make us look upward to Him for hope in all things. And I think you'll find the more that you study the Bible, it's really the story of every book of the Bible, including the book of Judges, where we see the patterns of both ruin and redemption played over and over again, intended to make us to look for a Savior who had come, Christ the Lord. So this morning as we come to Judges chapter 2, verses 6, uh, in, in 2-6 down through 3-6 is where we'll, we'll be today. Um, we're going to be thinking about one kind of big idea that, that flows out of that. 
It's this. That God's people are ruined when they sinfully abandon Him. But God redeems them because of His faithful love. God's people are ruined when they sinfully abandon Him, but God redeems them because of His faithful, steadfast, covenant-keeping love. That's the big idea, and what we'll see explained and expounded upon as we spend time in this, this portion of Scripture. Now, in order to kind of set the stage a little bit, let's, let's go to chapter 2, verse 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10, and we're going to get a kind of a, a summary of the situation. So if you're here last week, this is going to be a little bit of just a brief repeat from uh, the author here of Judges to, to kind of catch us up to speed on what's been happening. Follow along with me, if you will, 2, 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnah Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Verse 10, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. So up to this point, God has created a people miraculously by giving Sarah a a child, Isaac, as promised through Abraham in her womb, creates the nation of Israel. Then He gives that nation His law, as he promised that he would so that they would know him and know what it means to be his kingdom citizens. Then he promised that he would give them a land and he leads them to the land. And they come into this land that they are called to, um, to subdue the inhabitants there, to, to kill them off, to exterminate them, to put them to death as an act of God's divine judgment and also an act of God's divine protection. We talked about that last time. We'll revisit briefly in a little while. And what the author does here for us is he summarizes how it's gone. So once Joshua got into the land, we we see here three generations in view, right? So Joshua's generation, that verse 7, served the Lord. And as you read through Joshua, really they do that without compromise. God works in them miraculously. Their faith is strong. They obey God. Then last week we saw the generation that came after Joshua, the elders who outlived him, Verse 7 says they served the Lord, but we know also from chapter 1 that they, they also compromised. Uh, they, they compromised by not killing off all of the Canaanites as God had commanded them to do. But instead, what did they do with the Canaanites? Yeah, they, they made a covenant with them. So compromise led to covenant, as we said last week. The toleration gave way to total integration that living with the Canaanites led to worshiping with the Canaanites. They compromised and they adopted the practices of idolatry and immorality in their land and God confronted them, we saw at the end of last week, and they broke their heart. They, they wept. So they felt some of the consequences of their rebellion and they were brokenhearted over it and apparently uh, re- repented in, in some measure. But the compromises that they made, though they didn't show up in full in their generation, 
they showed up exponentially where? Right, in the next generation, in their children. Verse 10, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You see, God God had warned that this was going to happen. God warned them about uh, the the compounding compromises that would come and and the effects of it. Remember back in the the Ten Commandments when God gives number two, the second commandment, Exodus 20, verse 4, He says, You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow, bow down to them to serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So you don't, you don't make idols because no idol can represent God. And if you're going to chase after idols, you're going to end up compromising on who God is. And that's what the nations were full of, that they left and they adopted those practices. And God told them there in Exodus chapter 20, that I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did you notice how God equates hating him with disobeying him and loving him with obeying him? God promises his people here, the nation of Israel, when he gives them the law, that how they relate to him has effects that outlive them. This is not talking about a generational curse. Sometimes you'll hear people misuse this text and talk about how somebody, there's a generational curse that because your mama did this, well, then you're going to do this, which means your daughter's going to do this, and you're stuck in that and you can't get out. That's not, that's not how the, the, the Bible works. Ezekiel's very clear that a father's not judged for his son's sins or sons for the fathers. We're each accountable for our own. But what it is saying here is that there, the effects of sin are felt for generations. The effects of sin are felt for generations. You see it all the way through the book of Judges, you're going to see. You're going to see it through the Kings. I cut out a whole bunch of examples of how we see this in our day, but it is, it is, it is crystal clear that the way that one generation lives affects the generations to come. Now, that's the background, the backdrop of, of the story of the Judges. And this ruin and redemption that we are going to see played out before our eyes. And this is going to be a little bit unique kind of, kind of sermon in, in this sense. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to walk through and, and show, um, show what happens here in, in, um, in this text with the cycle of, of the judges. And we're going to, we're going to think first about what, what judges meant then to Israel, them being under the Mosaic Covenant. And then we're going to circle back and we're going to say, okay, then what does Judges mean now for the church under the New Covenant? What are the similarities and what are the dissimilarities? How are we supposed to read and apply and understand the book of Judges? I think it will be helpful for us as we think about reading most of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, um, so that we don't get weird and do things we ought not. Well, we're all going to be weird, but you know what I mean. Um, all right, ruin and redemption here, 2.11 down through 3.6. Now, what we're, what we're going to see here is there's, we're going to see the cycles of the judges. And what I mean by that, in chapters 3, 7, we're going to get our first judge, which we'll look at next week. We're going to, through all the way through chapter 16, there are going to be 12 judges. 
kind of representative, as it were, of the 12 tribes. They won't come from um, each of the tribes. But there's, there's 12 judges, and they're arranged in seven cycles, where you see the, seven, the same thing happen seven times, where you're going to see Israel is going to rebel against God. God is going to raise up an enemy to whoop them. They're going to cry out in misery, and then God is going to raise up a judge to deliver them. And then, rinse and repeat. We're going to do it again. We're going to rebel. God's going to raise up an enemy. They're going to cry out. He's going to raise up a judge. Then they're going to rebel. And then seven times we see that same cycle work through um, this, this book. So in one sense, history very much repeats itself here. We'll see God working the same lesson in his stubborn people's lives, which we'll be tempted to be like, why are they so dumb? Why don't they get it? When God's actually intending us to see that we're not that much different than them. One of the other things to just note about this, the spiraling of the judges is that it's, it's a downward spiral. Um, the, the judges get progressively worse as you go along until all the way at the end, you're going to have this guy named Samson who on the outside looks real good, but, but that joker's bad wrong. And you see it, and God makes that very, very clear. Okay? So let's watch, let's watch these, these cycles here. How do they work? Well, Israel rebels. This is the first part of the cycle. Look at verses 11 through 13. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Those are false gods. Verse 12, And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, verse 13, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, as we, as we look at this right here, and we see Israel's rebellion, the language of this section, I think, is supposed to be striking for us. The way that it portrays sin is supposed to be, yeah, I think it's supposed to be alerting and, and awakening. Because this, this God whom they're sinning against, look, look what they said about him there in verse, verse 12. The Lord is the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. This is the same God who had loved them. The same God who had sought them. The same God who had rescued them. The same God who had provided for them. The same God who had protected them. He was the faithful one who showered his covenant love upon them. God had only been good to them. And how did they repay that God? Verse 11, they did what was evil in his sight. They served the Baals. Verse 12, they went after other gods and bowed down to them. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. Verse 12, they provoked the Lord. Verse 17 says they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. And then all the way down in chapter 3, verse 6, you see that their daughters, uh, their daughters took uh, they took for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. We read earlier from Deuteronomy uh, the command to not intermarry, which the reason is because when you make that sort of marriage alliance with an unbelieving peoples, what's brought into the house? Idols. It's not an ethnic thing. That's not why it gives the command to not intermarry. It's an idol thing. Because they bring idols with them, and you're going to worship other gods. See further, Solomon. Okay? So the way they repay God's faithful love is rebellion. An adulterous, 
heart-wrenching, and it really is an adultery language that's used there. They hoard after other gods. They abandon the Lord. It's a heart-wrenching, glory-rejecting rebellion, which I think we're intended to see here that sin, the very nature of it, is a personal offense against God. It's not just you break rules that are in some old book that God got from some old book commands are reflections of his very nature. He says, this is what I'm like. I created you to look like me and act like me. And what sin is to say, I don't want to be like you. I don't want to follow you. I'm not going to submit to you. I want to follow my heart and do what I want to do. That's the very nature of sin. It's a personal rejection of a personal and faithful God. So that's Israel's rebellion. We see that happen throughout the book. Then we're going to see how God responds. God responds by raising up enemies. Look at verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and had sworn to them in both Leviticus 28 and Uh, Leviticus 26 and uh, Deuteronomy 28. And they were in terrible distress. So you see that God doesn't just sit up in heaven and say, oh, that's too bad, they're not playing nice. Rather, what he does is he actively opposes Israel's abandoning of of him. Because what you've got to understand, we heard this in the Exodus passage that I read a moment ago, that God's love is a jealous love. It's a jealous love. So when his bride runs out on him, there is a righteous anger. And and get this, God is never out of control. He doesn't need us, but he has chosen to love us. He has chosen to even emotionally engage with us to where our sin actually grieves him, the Bible says. Again, it doesn't mean that he's dependent on us or needs us, but he, there is a real relationship with his people where he really loves them and sin really grieves them. So his righteous anger comes at them because of their unfaithfulness. He's not out of control, but he's actually always in control. And what he does with that control is he gives them over to their enemies. He removes his restraining hand of mercy and lets the evil people just do what they want to do to him. And he, he applies his reproving hand of discipline. God says, oh, you like idols? You like idols? Well, go have your idols. Thy will be done. Let's see how those idols treat you. Let's see if they love you like I've loved you. Let's see if they provide for you like I've provided for you. Second Chronicles 12, 8 Uh, speaks about Israel, how um, they shall be servants to them, the the nations, under the, the kings of the nations who worship idols, that they may know the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. God says, you don't want my service? You want to know what it's like to be served by those idols? Here. You see, one of the lessons you, you notice throughout the Bible is that God does teach with pain. I mean, we could go around right now and we could all in here testify how God has, yeah, he has whooped us in different ways. 
and how very often in our stubbornness we've, we've rejected him and he has used hard and at times very hurtful things in a loving and good way to bring us back to him. As one of my mentors used to say, God has a board for every behind. And uh, he will find ways to, to bring that about, which is exactly what we see God doing with the Canaanites here. Which, by the way, if that makes you feel a little bit like, I don't understand how God does that, this is one of the major themes of the Bible, is that God uses evil for his good purposes. So the worldview of the yin and the yang, where evil and good are this balancing act in the universe, that's just not what the Bible says is reality at all. There's a God who's in complete control of everything at all times. God never does evil. But he is always completely in control of evil at all times. He uses it for his purposes. It's almost like, it's almost like, like judo, where you use the energy of your opponent, as it were, to accomplish what you're trying to do. God is, when you watch Judges, God is always using the evil of the Canaanites. He's not doing it, but he's using it. And he's always doing it to bring about his perfect plan. It's really masterful, the way that he does it. If you're like, I'm not so sure if I buy that, let's just think about Pharaoh for just a moment here. Listen to this from Romans 9, 17. God says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God took an already wicked man, Pharaoh, and he used him to put his wisdom and glory on display. I mean, think about it. The Exodus could have been a whole lot shorter. I mean, you could have done away with a lot of the book of Exodus. It could have been, and God spoke to Moses. Moses went in. Moses said to Israel, hey, we're going to the promised land. Everybody said, yay. And magically, they were raptured, and they appeared in the promised land. It could have just happened like that. God totally could have done that. But that's not what he did. God took the slow train out of Egypt. A very slow train. With plagues where each of those plagues he uses to show those were, those were the gods that, that Egypt worshipped, and every one he's assassinating their gods before them. Oh, you like the Nile? You think it's life-giving? I'll turn it to blood. You like frogs? You think they're fertility gods? Here, I'll give you frogs. And he just, he just shows you all the way through, and he's assassinating all of their gods before them. And you remember there's this play where both Pharaoh's hardening his heart and God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. doesn't mean that God's making Pharaoh evil. Pharaoh's already evil. He's just using an already evil man to bring about purposes. So much so that, I mean, shockwaves go out throughout the rest of the Bible history. We're still now thousands of years talking about the Exodus. They still make movies about it. Why? Because God used a wicked person, Pharaoh, for his good purposes. God does this all the time. He does it in the book of Judges. And really, this is, I mean, this is, think about the cross, right? The greatest evil in the history of the world is that humans would torture to death their creator. It's the most wicked thing that could ever happen. But God uses Judas and Pilate and Herod and all those guys. He uses wicked men to bring about his perfect plan. God can use evil to bring about his good and glorious purposes. You see that on full display here in in the Bible. That God does with with nations, what we do with Legos. He's just, he's amazing. 
And what we see in Judges is that God sovereignly uses evil nations to oppress his people, to break them of their pride and their idolatry so that they are, verse 15, in terrible distress. It is good and loving of God to break them so they cry out. And it is abundantly merciful of God that he responds. So God raises up judges. So we saw Israel's rebellion. We saw uh, God raises up enemies. But now we see in verse 16 through 18 that God raises up judges. Verse 16. I almost asked, does anybody have any questions about that? I'm so used to, I'm like, we should totally talk about that more. So if that whole thing with God using evil and, and being sovereign over it is like, if that, you're like, huh? Happy to talk about that. We're glad to do that. Just not right now. We'll do it later. All right, verse 16. Then the Lord, so this is God raises up judges. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted and oppressed them. So do you notice here that the one who gave them over to plunderers is the same one who saved them from the plunderers. The hand that was against them remained even in the midst of that mysteriously and faithfully for them. Though Israel strays from God's faithful love, God saves them by his faithful love. And did you notice why God saves? Verse 18. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now, what, what makes this even more amazing when you read through the book of Judges is that most of the time, their groaning rarely had anything to do with them being broken over their sin and the fact that they had aggrieved and offended God. It really just had to do with the fact that they were groaning under the consequences and the circumstances that they were in because of their sin. Basically, they didn't like getting whomped on. And so they're crying out in grief, and God, God has mercy on them. He has compassion on them. Which, listen, I, I don't know about you, but in, in places like this, God's character shows itself to be so unlike my own. Because I read through a cycle or a half a cycle of judges, and I'd be like, obliteration time, time for another flood. Right? I, I, I think God, God should just give them up. When I think about my own life, God should just give me up. He should just be done with me. I, I, I resonate with, with Martin Luther, the, the reformer, who said, If I were God and the world treated me as it treated him, I would kick that wretched thing to pieces. I read that and I'm like, I, I get it, I understand. Now listen, let me, just, let me just be clear in case somebody told you this in a college class somewhere. Whoever says that the God of the Old Testament is not a God of grace and mercy and patient, enduring love has not carefully read their Old Testament. There are not two gods. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He is 
forever patient. He is abundantly merciful. He is a patient, compassionate God who endures the grievous sin of his people and works all sorts of amazing things to bring them to repentance. Now certainly there is a day of judgment when his mercy ends. That is true. We do not deny that. It is 100% true. Because God is good, there is a day of judgment in which all evil will be dealt with fully and finally. That is certainly true. But the, the path there is one of unfathomable mercy and patience. This groaning that's spoken of here, it's, this word is only used three times in the Old Testament. The other two are in, in the Exodus when Israel groaned under slavery and God heard them and rescued them because of his faithfulness to the covenant. Well, some 300 years later, he still hears their groaning and he still rescues his people because of his covenant love. Dale Ralph Davis, the guy who wrote a great commentary on Judges, said this, hundreds of years do not cool the warmth of his compassions. God is a compassionate, merciful God who raises up judges to deliver Israel. And then what we see in verse 19, all the way down through 3.6, is the repeating of the cycles. That this is going on again and again and again, seven times in, in full. Look at verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out completely, and he did not give them into the hand of, of Joshua. Now, just in case you're wondering, the, the period of the judges lasts about some 300 years, 300 to 350. That's how long this whole thing's going on with all of these generations rolling through. And in this repeating cycle, what, what we see of this, this rebelling, this raising up of enemies, this compassion on the cries, this raising up of the judges, seven times... We see here that, that one of the points in it all is to, to test them. Did you catch that there? Verse 22, to test them. 3-1, to test them. 3-4, to test. The word means to prove. God intentionally leaves these nations to test Israel. Down in three, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he mentions the nations. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Philistines, the Sidonians. He leaves them in the land to, to test, to see who does Israel trust. Does she trust the idols of the nations, or does she trust the everlasting God? And to see who she loves. Does she love her sin that the idols promised to cater for her, or does she love her God? And what's revealed time and time and time and time and time again is that Israel loves her sin. And in, in a text like this, what we see with the cycles is that the human heart is exposed. This is not just true for people way back then, it's true for us as well. That when the human heart is exposed, when it's left alone, 
we show that we love sin. Not, not all love the same flavor of sin, but we all have our, our idols that we love and we look to for, for help. If you have trouble distinguishing what your, what your idol might be, I would say whatever, whatever you run to instinctively for help or for comfort or for security or for affirmation or for pleasure, whatever instinctively you go for, that is your God, practically. And Israel loved her idols, and so do we. Now, the really scary thing about sin, as we see put on full display here in, in this book, is its enslaving nature. Because what happens, verse 19, as soon as the restraint of the judge is removed, what's this, what do they do? Go back to sin. They, they dive right back in. And they're going to go deeper than last time. One of the things you're going to watch, as this spiral goes downward, the darkness is going to get darker. The sin's going to get grosser. It's going to become more and more perverse. To when you read the end of the book of Judges, a lot of people are like, I'm not even going to read that with my kids because of how grotesque it is. But it's real. We do read it with our kids and talk about it. We think it's, it's actually Sin always, we're going to watch here, it, it always inches back the boundaries. It wants more and more rain. Last week we said it was imperialistic. It's never satisfied. It wants all of you. Just, just think about your, your own jealousies. You ever been jealous towards someone? Does it just stay put? I find that it does not. It grows and gets deeper and hotter. Or your covetousness. Many of us feel that here in this land of ambition where position and affirmation is just never enough. And we covet. Or lust. That's why, that's why for those who, who struggle with pornography, that's why one page never does. And that's why you'll sit there and click through thousands of pages looking for something that's not there. That's why those who are enslaved in relationships, always looking for somebody to complete you and do what only God can. That's why greed, it can never be satisfied. When Rockefeller was asked, how much money's enough? He said, just one more dollar. It's just never enough. That's why self-righteousness, who hears all of those things that other people do and feels good about itself, can never just be satisfied with laws. They can always going to find another one to feel good about their accomplishments of. Well, in the Judges, we see Israel suffer the consequences of her sin, yet not haphazardly. God is, in the midst of it all, what he's doing is he's disciplining them. And he shows this patient, intentional, scalpel-like kind of love that, that cuts Israel often, but not to kill her, but to cleanse her and to purify her. And that is indeed how God loves his people. That though God's people will abandon him and plunge into ruin, he compassionately seeks and redeems them because of his covenant faithful love.
Now, what we're going to do for our last couple minutes together, you want to say, okay, that's what, that's what judges, that's what's going on in judges. Now, we need, we need to think about how should a Christian read and understand and apply the Old Testament as a whole, but, but the book of Judges specifically. What, what kind of things do we look at and say, oh, I'm supposed to be doing that, or I'm not supposed to be doing that, and why? Because it's not helpful to just read through the Bible and pick and choose what you want. That creates a God in your own image, not submitting to the one who is, who created us in his own image. We, we, can't, we can't do that. We've got to understand how we read the Bible and, 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 and why. Because misunderstanding this can lead to a great misusing of the Bible, a great dishonoring of God, and a, a great hurting of people. You think that can happen? Oh, yeah. History is full of examples. Constantine sees a vision of a cross, and what's he want to do next? He wants to Christianize the entire Roman Empire, which you can't do because you can't command, you can't force regeneration. You can't make a Christian nation. It just doesn't work like that. Or after that, the Crusades, who viewed themselves as Israel, conquering the unbelievers who had swords in their hand. Convert or die, they said. But you can't force conversion. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Or maybe a little closer to home, with the founding of our nation. You have pilgrims who think that they are Israel. And they've come to a new Israel, a new Jerusalem. And what do they find when they get here? There's Canaanites in the land. So what are you going to do to them? You're going to exterminate them. Or you're going to enslave them. Or what are you going to do a little bit later on in New England when you get witches? Well, you're going to read your Old Testament and you're going to say, well, you burn witches. Or, lock the doors, in 2016, when a pastor, a Baptist pastor from Texas, would preach on Inauguration Day a sermon to President Trump from Nehemiah saying that God's people build walls and now God's man is here to build walls. Now, I'm not about to make a statement on immigration, but what I am saying is that's not the way you use the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah would be very frustrated. That is not the intent of the book of Nehemiah. That is not the way it's supposed to to be read or used. If you don't know how to understand how the new covenant changes things, you will misuse the Bible. You will be confused when you read the Bible. And you will find yourself spinning and unable to answer questions of why do you pick some sins in the Old Testament that you say, yeah, that's still sin, but you're going to wrap your shrimp in bacon. How are you going to choose? Well, this is where I think it's helpful to understand how God works with his people under first the Mosaic Covenant and now under the New Covenant. Mosaic Covenant and New Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. 
You remember, God created the nation of Israel. He calls out this man, Abraham, and he promises, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you seed, offspring. One of them is going to be a great savior, and I'm going to give you a blessing, okay? Now, the way you're going to get to know the blessing in that land that he's giving is through what's called the Mosaic Covenant, a.k.a. the law. Okay, God gives the law to Moses, makes a covenant with him. This law reveals God's character, and it reveals how his people are to respond in faith to him and obey the law. So obedience equals faith. It's the way it shows itself. And then what God does through all of Israel's history is he tests them. He tests them sometimes with prosperity. Sometimes he tests them with neighbors who love idols. He's going to test them in all sorts of ways, sometimes through exile and, and, and affliction. He's always testing his people to see where their love lies. And the way that the old the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, also known as the Old Covenant, um, also known as the Law, those are all three the same thing, the way that it works is if you obey, God will bless you. He will protect you. He will provide for you in the land that he's giving you. That's why whenever you read Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're always talking about in the land that I'm giving you, this is how you're supposed to act so that you can stay in the land. Right? But if you disobey under the Old Covenant, what happens? God's going to curse you. God's going to withhold protection. He's going to lovingly pummel you. That's what he does. He does it with plagues. He does it with enemies. He does it in the book of Judges with the nations that are around them. Okay? Now, what's unique about this, please stay with me, this is really important. What's unique about all this is that Israel was what you call a theocracy. Not a democracy like what we have in our country, but a, a theocracy, which means that he is dealing with his people. He's, he's the God of all things, but he chooses in this covenant to deal with his people in a geographical aerial, area. Israel, the land of Canaan, that's what he's doing there. God is their king. Yes, God's king now, true, we'll get to that in a moment, but God is king over Israel, okay? He dwells he, think about the humility. He dwells in a box in a tent. He's in the ark, in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the midst of this place, dwelling there as their king. Israel are citizens of his kingdom. Okay? This is, and if God says, you want to stay in the land, you want provision, you want protection, then what you're going to do is you're going to obey. And if you disobey, then I'm going to take down the walls of my protection and, and enemies will come. So in Judges, we see this covenant played out really clearly seven times. We get to see how it works. They obey, they're blessed with protection. They disobey, they're broken with pain. But it's tied to a place. This is all happening in a geographical area. And as you read through Judges, it's intended to do something that the whole Old Testament's intended to make you do. It's supposed to stir something in you. It's supposed to make you wish, oh my, why doesn't... Uh, why didn't Israel just get it together? Why can't there be a people who just obey the law? Why can't there be a judge who just is going to keep on living and not die? Because as soon as a judge dies, here they go again. Why can't there be a judge who would just live on and shepherd this people in the promised land so they can forever know the blessing of God? The whole thing's supposed to stir anticipation, which is really what the whole Old Testament, if you want to sum it up in one word, is anticipation. Somebody's coming. You see, the Mosaic law it is a placeholder 
pointing people to their need for a Savior, one who's going to come to fulfill it, which is what Jesus does when he comes to inaugurate the new covenant. So that's, that's how God operates under the old covenant. Obey, bless, disobey, curse. This all happens in a geographical area. Jesus comes to fulfill all of that. He fulfills all of the Old Testament. He fulfills the hope, uh, everything you hoped for in the judges. He fulfills all of the law. He fulfills the prophets. This is what he does. And when he comes on the scene, what we see is that he's representing the same God of the Old Testament. That he is the Son of God who is compassionate. You see, God's compassion remains. Jesus is the incarnation of mercy and compassion. People lay in ruin, but here comes redemption in Christ. Hear this from Matthew chapter 9. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. Rest is what Israel was consistently promised in the Old Testament if they obeyed. Rest in the land. Jesus says, I will give you rest in myself. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So God is saving his people, and he does it now in the ultimate sense by sending Jesus. So don't, don't be confused. God's people are always saved the same way. By grace, through faith, in God's provision, in the old, uh, under the old covenant of the one who would come to fulfill it. And people are saved by grace, through faith, under God's provision of the one who did come to fulfill it, Jesus. Now, but his coming changes how God relates to his people. There are similarities and dissimilarities between the old covenant and the new covenant. So Jesus comes, fulfills the covenant, now brings us into a new covenant. How is it alike? How is it different? I'm glad you asked. Two particular ways. There's lots of ways, but these are the two particular ways. How we worship God and where we worship God. How we worship God and where we worship God. So how we worship Him? Well, we worship God now under a new covenant. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, in Luke chapter 22, He's sitting with His disciples. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the what? The new covenant in my blood. Jesus says, I'm inaugurating a new covenant. Now, in order for that to happen, you've got to have the old, what's going to happen to the old covenant? Because God's not like, just like, oh, I'm done with that, throw it away. No, no, no. It needs to be fulfilled, which it never has because nobody's ever kept it. Until Jesus comes. Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, he said. You see, the law and the prophets, they anticipated him, and he accomplished them. Everything God commanded in the law, love God, love neighbor, Jesus did perfectly. So this morning, when we're reading through the law in Deuteronomy, and then we read that Psalm um, 81 that talked about the law, not one of us can read that and be like, I'm good. Nobody can do that. Except Jesus, who did it. He obeyed perfectly. He was the greater Adam. He was the true Israel. He did what Adam didn't do. He did what Israel wouldn't do. And then he died on the cross, 
Why? He deserved nothing but blessing because obedience brings blessing. He died for the curses that lawbreakers like you and me deserved. All of the sins against God, creating other gods before him, not coveting, every, every sin that we have, we have done against our God, Jesus died on the cross to take that judgment. He died on the cross to take the curses we deserve for disobeying. And then he rose from the dead. And now, for those who are united to him by turning from their sin and trusting in him, they now relate to God, not under the old covenant, because the law brings condemnation. But when we repent and believe in Christ, we come to God, and he takes out an old stony heart that loves sin, and he gives us a new heart that loves him and that hates sin. That's why it bothers a Christian when you sin because there's something new in you. What's new in you is you have a new heart because God's Holy Spirit indwells you and seals you now into a relationship with God. So that now in Christ, the blessing, the protection, the provision of God is showered on his people, not because of their goodness, but because of his goodness. We're now under a new covenant. We relate to God under a new covenant covenant. And as his new covenant people, we are commanded still to obey him and to obey him in in love. But our relationship is secure because we're in Christ, sealed until the day of redemption, but our fellowship is dependent upon our obedience. Our union with him is steady, but our communion with him varies in response to our obedience to his commands. Does that make sense? So you're not, he's not, God's not like, you're my children, you're not my child. You are my child, you're not my child. He doesn't deal with it. You are my child, you always are. But our obedience matters very much. So now we're called to obey in faith. His spirit fills us, enlightens us, empowers us, and we, we walk in the power of his spirit, resisting temptation, obeying him. Which doesn't mean that hard things come, but now when hard things come, we know that he loves us and we rest in this and we have a peace and a joy that's unexplainable. But when we disobey, disobedience still matters to God very much. It's still a personal offense against God. It's still grievous in his sight. It's still a lack of faith. And when we disobey, what God does is he faithfully disciplines us in a similar way to the way he did with Israel. He convicts by the power of his spirit. He convicts and enlightens us and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. To love God is to obey him. Jesus wouldn't do that. Jesus wouldn't say that. Jesus wouldn't look at that. Jesus wouldn't act like that towards someone. That's what conviction is. That's an act of discipline by the Father that he's alerting us to the fact that we need to turn back to him as his child. Now, at times... At times, in his mercy, we respond and we confess and we repent. Yes, Lord, and we turn. And there are times where in his wisdom, consequences are removed. But there's other times in his wisdom where consequences remain. Okay, that's probably another sermon for another day. Or the other option is to not respond by confessing and repenting. We can resist his discipline. The Spirit comes, convicts us, and I'll be like, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Christians can do that. Christians do that. And how does God deal with 
his people who persist in that sort of heart posture? Well, he will break them. Very similar to what he did with, with Israel. The God who orchestrated the nations to discipline and test his people is the same God, where he will discipline his people in all sorts of unique, and I've found in my own life and watching other people's lives, very creative ways. So don't ever think you can out, like, don't think you can outsmart God, that uh, he'll never find it or whatever. He's, he's pretty, pretty amazing. He sees everything, knows everything, and has um, really incredible ways of bringing sin out into the light. But he does it in love, because you're his child if you're in Christ. Just one other note before we think about where we worship. So this is how we worship. I thought it was an interesting parallel to where God left the nations to, to test Israel which I think, for me, helps a little bit in thinking about why does God leave abiding sin in Christians? Have you ever wondered that? Like, why doesn't God just take this desire for whatever it is away? Just take that away from me. Well, I wonder how much we might actually need God if our bank accounts were always full, if we never struggled with sin, if there were never dark days, there was never persecution. I wonder how much we would actually be aware of our needing for him. So what he does, is I think, is he leaves this abiding sin, and he's putting it to death through the power of the Spirit and our obedience, yes. But he wants us to learn to lean into him, to, res- to look to him and to say, God, would you help me to love you? Well, we could go more, but we worship God under a new covenant. So how we worship him is different, Okay. Now, our worship, where we worship God, our worship of God is not geographically centered. This is very important. You see, God formally dealt with his people in relation to the geographical land in the Middle East where Jesus, I mean, that, that's where it was. In, in, the middle, in the Middle East, God gave his land to them. He dealt with them in the land of Canaan, in the land of Israel. That's where he dealt with them. But when Jesus came, he changed that. John chapter 4, Jesus said, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father, not in this city or that one, but in spirit and in truth. You remember they're, they're discussing which mountain is the holy mountain, and he goes, neither one of them matter anymore. Because now you're going to worship me in spirit and in truth, he says. When Jesus is about to be crucified, do you remember what he says in uh, chapter 18, uh, verse 36 of John? He says, My kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is it's different. So God's people are now from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and they are, not, they are not centrally located in Jerusalem or in America or Africa or China or Japan, but rather they are now spread throughout the world. The land does not mean the same thing under the new covenant because God has promised now a new heaven and a new earth. So some people say, well, does that make God a liar? He promised that he's going to fulfill specific land promises to Israel. To which I say, no, 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 God is no liar at all. He keeps every one of his promises. But if God, if God gives them more than just that plot in the Middle East, does that make him a liar? No. If I promise my daughter, don't get your hopes up, if I promise my daughter a bike for her birthday, but I buy her a Lambo, Am I a liar? If I pull up that Lamborghini, is she going to say, Dad, you're such a liar. You're so awful to me. 
you promised me a bike. Well, at this age, maybe because she can't drive, but um, every illustration breaks down at some point. But I think you get the idea. If God says, I'm going to give you this land, and he says, actually, scrap that, I'm going to give you, the whole, I'm going to give you a new heaven and a new earth. And it's not going to be just you, but I'm going to graft in people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They will come into the promises that we made to Israel. Israel is a steward of promises. We now come and dine at the table with them. So, so this is where I, th- I think it's important with our a- examples from earlier. And I understand, just send emails to info at delraybaptist.org. But the idea of a Christian nation is just not a biblical concept. I'll just say that again. The idea of a Christian nation is just not a biblical concept. Now, might there be many Christians? Oh, we hope there are. We hope there are many, many Christians. But we hope that's true for our country and every other country. But you can't Christianize people. You just create a bunch of hypocrites. People who say that they're one thing, but actually not. Because you can't do that with a heart. Only God can do that. You can't force people to be born again. You can't legislate love for God. So again, don't hear me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm thankful for our country and the many freedoms that we have. I'm thankful for much of the heritage that we have here. But we've got to look at our heritage and know that it is. There's blood all over hands. Because people misused the Bible and justified imperialistic, racist tendencies and, and sins in their heart, and they use the Bible to do it, and that's from hell, and that's bad, it's evil. I just want you to know, like, God doesn't expect America to be a Christian nation. He expects the church to love him. He expects the church to be a light to the nations. He expects the people of God to be salt among the nations, among these people groups. The church is not called to the same kind of conquest that Israel was. No, Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when Jesus sends out his people to make disciples of all nations, we go with a sword, but not a sword of steel. Under the new covenant, we go with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And that sword is more powerful than any steel sword. Because that sword can put to death the old man and bring somebody to life. That's what the sword of the Spirit does. That's the kind of conquest that God's people do now. It's evangelism, where you proclaim the gospel, and you don't force people to believe. You proclaim it, and you ask God to make it come alive in people's hearts. And God now dwells, not in a physical temple building in a particular geographical location. I'm thankful for this, but this is not where God is, as it were. But he's in a new temple, which is his very people, by his spirit, that are located in every tribe, tongue, and nation around the globe. So where's the temple of God now? It's all over the new heaven and the new earth, indwelling his people. And as they're there, they're doing spiritual warfare. So so what's our hope for Alexandria, uh, Virginia, and D.C.? It's not to conquer the area for Jesus. The goal is to reach the city with the gospel, but we, there is no command in the Bible to, yeah, to, to Christianize Alexandria. It's just not, not the way it works. Now, may God use 
faithful Christian love and service and work to impact the city that, in ways that bless it and are good and are life-giving? Yes, we must do that. But what God is doing is very different. That's why I'm not a big fan of the whole redeem the city stuff. Do good to the city. Be a salt, be light. Bless the socks off of them. Make them cry when the church shuts the doors. But not because we've made it a Christian place, but because we've showed them Christ. There's a big difference. Now, don't hear me say that physical things don't matter. They matter very much. But hear that there's a different emphasis. That's why in the book of Acts, what were the Jews doing with their land? They were selling it off to fund gospel mission and gospel proclamation. Obviously, I could go on longer, which I know you're not hunting for, but I just want to be clear. I think it's important to understand the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because it it radically changes how we think about what we're to be doing now. The final thing I'm going to close with is one last similarity between the two, and that is how God so often calls his people to remember. Amnesia leads to apostasy. And that was Israel's problem, and historically has been the church's as well. And that's why the Lord has instituted something called the Lord's Supper, which we're about to partake of here in just a moment. It's a time for us to remember Christ who came and fulfilled the Old Covenant, that we might be brought under the New Covenant and know Him and love Him and be used by Him to make His name known. So let's prepare for that now. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you might use your word to help us to think better about um, all the things that we talked about. Lord, would you, would you give us grace that we might be a people who love Jesus all the more for the way that he has brought us unto this glorious new covenant? God, might you give us sensitive hearts that hate sin and love you very much. God, we pray that as we go out that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel. And that we would not seek to Christianize everybody, but that we would seek to call people to love Jesus and follow him, trusting that the fruit of that will do much good. Father, we pray that as we remember your son now, that you would give us hearts to love him all the more. In the name of Jesus, amen.